Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit. And on this episode, I'm talking to Alison Killing of Killing Architects. And Alison's been working on a really interesting investigation recently, looking at Uyghur internment camps in China's Xinjiang province. And so I'll hand over to Alison. And Alison, it'd be great to introduce yourself first and give a bit of a background on how you got into this type of investigative research before we then go on to talk about the case itself. Sure. I'm an architect by background. I've worked in architecture, structural engineering, urban planning for a number of years before then starting to work for myself. And I've been working for myself for about 10 years now. And just over time, I've found that my work has moved away from building towards more digital storytelling and now also investigation projects as well. If I could maybe jump in there. I mean, when, when you say digital storytelling, what kind of examples might people have seen of digital storytelling? Yeah, um, in 2017, I did a project called Migration Trail, which was about migration to Europe, which I started sort of in response to the sudden growth of people sort of travelling through the central Mediterranean to Europe and then travelling through the Balkans. Um, and it was a project that was trying to sort of tell that story of migration to Europe in a different way. And so it was done through maps and social media. And we told the stories of two migrants travelling to Europe and we told that in real time over 10 days through the medium of this interactive map, which had a lot of data sort of embedded into it. And then also social media feeds. We work with writers from Nigeria and also Lebanon to write the voices of these two characters as an instant messaging feed, which the audience could then get in in Facebook Messenger. That's actually yeah. fascinating because, you know, I mean, from two angles, actually, and I realize I'm sort of heading off on a bit of a tangent here before I'm letting you really properly finish introducing yourself. But um, on the digital storytelling front, that's something that I think a lot of our clients and organizations that we work with have been looking at more and more. And I think, you know, especially when it comes to those topics, which are so vital and so important, not just in, you know, in 2015, when um, there was that sudden surge of migration, etc. But that has been a constant theme, I think, now over the over the, the five years since then. It's, it's a topic which is, you know, massively important for understanding human security around the world. And, and you know, Europe in particular has been affected from our perspective, I guess, in terms of what we're seeing close up. Um, so that kind of digital storytelling is, is something that I think is a much more important part of communicating to an audience um, and to decision makers, policy makers, you know, what's really happening. Um, so, yeah, so you were saying as well that you got into investigative research and how did you sort of come to pick up on this topic um, of, of what was going on in China and where did you start really with your research into that? Yeah, so Mega and I met in the summer of 2018. Um, I should say that's, that's, so that's Mega Roger Gopalan, isn't it? Yes, that's who, right. who was was yeah. going to be joining us on this episode, but unfortunately couldn't as she's uh, she's come down with flu and hopefully hopefully we'll be feeling better um, by the time this uh, this is broadcast. Yeah, so we met just over two years ago and we were both taking part in a workshop that was being run by Tactical Technology Collective, which is a data activism team who are based in Berlin. And we were working on a guide for sort of communities and and sort of citizen activists and investigators who wanted to investigate issues within their community. And so we were producing a sort of guidebook for this. Some people did work about how to interview, how to search local archives, local records. And I produced the chapter on satellite imagery and, and on mapping for those sorts of investigations. And so, yeah, we, we met in the course of that workshop and, and got talking. Mega had recently returned from China 
her visa had been revoked after she, after she produced the first set of stories on Xinjiang. She was one of the first journalists to, or she was the first journalist to visit one of the camps, uh, which upset the Chinese government quite a lot. And so she lost the visa. And so she had um, just left there and was re-establishing her, herself, I think, in the Middle East at that time. But we got talking about her work um, to try and, and find at least sort of one camp and how she'd done it. And we got talking about how, you know, satellite imagery might help sort of extend that work. And we started off like actually talking about quite basic things, which were quite readily available, historical imagery in, in Google Earth that could show the camp's development. And then over the next couple of months, we kind of stayed in touch, just talking about, well, you know, we we knew that at that time there was an estimate that there were about 1,200 camps in existence. And at the same time, only around 70 had been had been found. So there's a massive gap between what what was really known and what what it was suspected was going on. And so we started talking about like how could we um you know maybe find the rest of this network. And we, we explored a few ideas. We we sort of talked over machine learning but quickly rejected that. Um and then you know every so often I would spend a couple of hours just playing around with stuff and you know, doing doing some research on this. And um, one of the things, an article that I came across um, talked about how uh, Street View in Baidu had been censored in some places. And it's been done quite clumsily. It had been, um, it was almost like um, it had been photoshopped quite badly in places to, to sort of erase some industrial areas. I think that that was in the east of China. And so having seen, Having seen that that was a possibility, I wondered if the same thing was possibly happening with, with camps in Xinjiang. And so I went to Baidu to have a look. And what I found was that there was actually no street view in the areas of the of the handful of camps that we knew about. And yet what I found instead was that the map was sort of loading strangely. It, yeah, it just seemed kind of broken. It wasn't loading properly. There were these like funny squares. So it was almost like there was a bug in the system or, so, or something deliberate had been done to stop that loading. When I first saw it, it just seemed like poor bandwidth. It's just a very slow, ah. heavy, heavy website. Mm. But be- actually because of the work that I'd done on Migration Trail where I'd built all of these interactive maps, I'd learned quite a lot about how online maps work and the way that the tiles load and what uh, these platforms tend to do if they can't find a tile, if they can't load it. And so that alerted me to the fact that actually there was something different going on that where where satellite tiles appeared not to be loading, actually it wasn't serving a default tile. You usually get this like grey watermarked tile in a place that a platform mm-hmm. can't load something. But instead we were getting these light grey tiles. And even in one place, just like a single light grey tile over the location of one of the camps. And then as you zoomed in, the satellite imagery disappeared. So did that light grey tile. And you just have standard reference map tiles, which is... Um, reference map is the standard grey ones where you just have like the roads as lines and like outlines of buildings and things like that and so you know there wasn't very much satellite imagery at all there but yeah and then looking at this a bit further I realised like actually I could replicate this process that this tile was appearing right where the camp should be just at this one zoom level and so I got together a short list of places that we definitely, definitely knew were camps, about six of them. We knew they were camps because journalists had visited them and started to look to see whether the same things were happening there, and they were. And at that point, it seemed like we had a pretty good strategy for potentially finding the rest of the camps. 
Wow. Okay. And so then you were able to use the locations that you knew of. How did you go about doing the rest? Was it then sort of broadening out the search across map tiles across that region so that you could just identify other other ones at that particular zoom level? And did you have to sort of yeah. essentially then go almost system very systematically across the map? Yeah. So that's oh. exactly what we did. Wow. Um, so we worked with a developer, Christo Buschek, who has a lot of experience of building these sorts of analysis and investigatory tools. And he developed a tool for us that was able to compare the mask tile, the, the mask tile locations in Baidu and overlay them onto Google Maps so that we could see what was there. And then also into, into that tool, there was the chance to sort of tick off all of those separate locations so that we could mark them as like checked, unchecked, um, a place that we needed to come back to. And then also if we spotted a location that looked like it maybe could be a camp, we could place a marker there and come back to it. And so when we set out, I think we were expecting, I think we were expecting maybe we would find like 50,000 or 70,000 locations, something like that, which is already quite a lot. But in fact, we found that there were 5 million. And um, yeah, like it wasn't just things that you would, that you would expect to be set to be hidden that were, that were masked in that way. Instead, we found, you know, it was like industrial plants, power stations, oil refineries, I think military shooting ranges, which can cover quite a wide area. A lot of things actually just related to infrastructure almost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Infrastructure, um, also the military, um, Mm -hmm. which is more expected. But the infrastructure ones, there's a large amount of them and, you know, some of them, and some of them are like very wide ranging. They cover a large geographical area. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible number, though, when you say it. I mean, five million. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think sites. it was. I think that at that zoom level, there were about like seventy million tiles right. in the whole of Xinjiang. Okay. So it's you know eight percent or so. It's still quite a lot. Yeah, and, um, and were you doing this very manually then to to identify these tiles? Yeah. To go through, or, or were you able to automate yeah. it in any way? No, we were going through it manually. So the the problem the problem with the sort of machine learning and why we rejected it in the first place is that I mean there's the the challenge of getting together a good data set from which you can can build out. Um we had sort of a a rough I mean we had about seventy camps that we knew about. So we could have used that as a training data set. The problem is that they're not similar enough to each other to um probably are not similar enough to each other to be a good training set that also because so many of them were buildings that had been schools and hospitals that had been then converted into camps um, and still sort of largely looked like schools and hospitals um, right. a compound with you know six reasonably large buildings of five or six stories with a, a slim wall around it which is you know that's what every school and hospital in in China looks like, or at least every school and hospital sure. in Xinjiang. We didn't want to be pulling all of those up. And so we did end up doing most of it manually. But what we did, rather than sort of setting out to look at like really all 5 million of those tiles, what we did was to try and narrow it down mm-hmm. um, by looking at areas around um, like medium-sized towns and then medium medium-sized towns and larger, and then also along major infrastructure routes. Um, and that brought it down to about 50,000 
locations that we needed to look at. So the the thing about um, prisons, and it's funny because when I talk to people about this project, one of the things that a lot of people kind of ask me is like, oh my God, like where are these places? Are they like, are they hidden out in the desert? Are they in the mountains? Mm. Do they hide them underground, whatever. <laughs> like actually, no, they're like, they're, they're on the outskirts of towns and they're next mm. to like major roads. And there's really good reasons for that, which is that, um, you know, just to start off with building them, you need you need to like get the materials there. You need to get trucks with concrete and steel. Yeah, so you need good you supply need routes and yeah, yeah, infrastructure nearby. Makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you mm. need construction workers. Um, once mm. the places are open, you need to be able to transport the detainees there. Um, you have staff working there. Those people need somewhere to live. They probably have families who you know children who go to school partners who who have other jobs they need services like you know hospitals and parks and schools and you know all of those sorts of things and so it makes sense that those places are located instead near to towns um and so i mean it's it's still a remarkable number though when you say fifty thousand. yeah no it is oh you started off i mean and presumably you narrowed it down from there yeah so So what we did from there, actually, I, I, I started working through that 50,000 systematically. Um, I did all of Kashgar Prefecture and some of Kizilzu as well in that way. And that took me to about 10,000 tiles. I did that in a week, actually, which was wow. not, which is not ridiculous. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it sounds a pretty phenomenal level of work in terms of its... You know, it involves a lot of attention to detail, I suppose, and actually just, as you say, systematically going through it to be able to spot those differences. Yeah, as you go, you also like build your skill in recognising these places as well. At first, what we were doing, or what I was doing, actually was sort of going through and just picking out any place that could potentially be a camp. Actually, I pulled out a lot of schools. Um, so it was, you know, I was looking at any building with, or not any building, like any compound of a certain size with like four, five, six buildings in it. Right. And would it have something that looks like an exercise yard or something like that as well, or like a school playground? I guess they would be pretty similar yeah. looking. School playground, yeah. possibly a sports field. Right. Yeah. Like a, a, a sort of football field with a running track around it. A lot of right. them have. Um, mm-hmm. And so by doing that, the idea was that we could start to, to like narrow down this data set of like 50,000 locations to something that was a bit more manageable and then we could look at those in more detail i actually got better at spotting these places and also once you've found a certain number you understand like both what the sort of range of designs of these places is and also like the sorts of places that you're likely to find them and those two things together help to speed up the research quite a lot so that having done about ten thousand. I actually started to work slightly less systematically in, in the sense of I wasn't suddenly going through like all of those individual tiles anymore, but starting to look at, I started to work at a county level across Xinjiang. We knew that in each county there was likely to be one pre-trial detention centre that was often the site of a new camp and or prison. And if we could find that detention centre and it was in the centre of town with no space to expand, then we would be looking for a prison or a camp on the outskirts, probably in an industrial estate. And so that meant sort of two things. Firstly, that 
around each town, I was checking all of the industrial estates and those sort of edge of town areas, which is also where you have land to build the prison. And then on the other hand, I had a list of counties and I was going through and ticking off what I had found in each county and whether I'd yet found the detention centre, had I yet found the new camp and prison. And if I hadn't, then I knew that I needed to keep looking further in that county. So with those two things together, we were able to speed up quite a lot. And when you say, obviously, you know, you need a certain amount of land, et cetera, to be able to build these sites or, or convert from existing buildings, were they all a similar size, the ones you found, or were they did they vary in size and scale? They vary quite a lot. So presumably that makes it harder. I mean, you're not looking for something which is a complete, completely standard design of a building every time you're yeah, you're going across the map. I mean, that that would be handy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, right, so, sure. So yeah. the, there's a load of pre-trial detention centres, and they tend to have the same design. They're like they're quite small. They're sort of like squished T shape, and they're actually quite easy to recognise because of that. They also have thick walls around them, and they have guard towers, um, which is if you see that around a building, it's fairly certain that that's that's a camp or a, or a prison. And then otherwise, so there's definitely a bit of a pattern going sort of north going south to north in Xinjiang, where in the south, there are a much larger percentage of the population is Uyghur or Kazakh, which are the minorities which are being targeted for these internment campaigns. Mm-hmm. And so there's also a larger percentage, a larger number of camps, and the camps often themselves larger. Once you go north, there are fewer camps, and they tend to be a bit smaller. But there's also been a big shift in the sorts of camps and prisons that we've been seeing being built. So when this campaign of detention first started, which was around sort of, it, I think like the first public announcements of it were around March 2017, but we've seen the development of some of these places from around mid-2016 onwards, which was when the new governor of Shenzhen came into office. At that point, a lot of what was happening was the conversion of existing government buildings, typically schools and hospitals, although there were also um, residential buildings which um, were sitting empty because they hadn't been sold. And those buildings were being taken over and converted to become internment camps. The way that you would typically recognise them, apart from like the wall around them, and I mean, schools and hospitals often had a wall around them anyway, but Mm -hmm. where, for example, a residential complex had been converted to a camp, suddenly you would see these odd walls going right through the middle of a complex, blocking roads and dividing up the the neighbourhood in a way that you naturally just wouldn't do. So that was what we were seeing at the beginning. Those places often also had sort of barbed wire pens in the courtyards and also um, sort of barbed wire tunnels, which would lead between the buildings. And that was the key way in which you could spot those places. Then from around early 2018 onwards, we started to see the construction of a new set of facilities. They tended to be much bigger. In many cases, they were much bigger. They were also, they were built as prisons, so they dedicated detention facilities. They're also built, they're also like much more permanent in construction, so they're built out of concrete rather than, or the the fortifications at least are built out of concrete and not barbed wire. Um, They would have these walls which are maybe a metre and a half, two metres thick. Um, there would be guard towers and much bigger, much more, much higher security, much more intimidating facilities. So when, when you're when you're looking at these, you know, as you said, you started off with the, you know, going through the the, the mapping on um, Baidu to look at the where the grey squares were, to where there weren't mm-hmm. things 
visible at a certain zoom level. And then you've cross-referenced to other satellite imagery to find out what was there to be able to identify all of these features and details that you've just described. Were you doing anything else to sort of help verify? You know, were you trying to find other imagery or was, it, was, it, were there, was there any other sort of sources of information available to be able to verify what these facilities were, whether they were, for example, um, perhaps a normal prison versus one of these kind of re-education camps? So, yeah, it's very difficult to tell the difference between a re-education camp and other sorts of detention facilities. The exception right. is mm-hmm. the pre-trial detention facilities that I already mentioned, which mm. is that squash t-shape. Those are very distinctive. But for the rest, no, it's it's actually very difficult. Because, I mean, yeah. just as a bit of, I guess, for background for people who aren't aware of the situation, I suppose it's been over the last five or six years, as you described, sort of um, more recently since 2016 particularly, that in in the Xinjiang province there's been a campaign of what's being called re-education, but ultimately is is internment, and it's it's trying to, I don't think brainwash is the right term, is it? But, I mean, in terms of trying to force people's uh, people to give up their cultural identity in many ways in yeah. that part of China. It's, yeah, it's... It's a campaign of like forced cultural assimilation. Yes. So it's I think sort of five six years ago the main thing was sort of very heavy surveillance in Xinjiang, sort mm-hmm. of installation of huge amounts of CCTV cameras, a lot of checkpoints going through towns, people needing to go through checkpoints as they went into a school, as they went to put petrol into their car, as they went into a shopping mall. Um, you know, needing to go through multiple checkpoints on a short journey as people went about their day-to-day business. You know, monitoring of cultural activities such as weddings, police turning up at somebody's at people's weddings to make sure that there were no Islamic readings. And that and this is, I mean, this is sort of bound up, I suppose, in sort of political events and developments in China over the last sort of a uh, couple of decades, I guess, in terms of the development of a, an, an independence movement to some extent in that region. But it's a very heavy-handed response to a, a yeah. political issue from the Chinese yeah. central government. I mean, that's that's putting it mildly. I mean, obviously, it's it's a lot worse than yeah. that. It's um, it's quite yeah. brutal in in and in, in descriptive, you know, in just how you're describing the facilities, etc. It, it sounds remarkably brutal, and we've seen propaganda put out by the Chinese government to show that what what's actually going on is much more benign than what people are saying. And actually, uh, at the same time, we see other bits of information coming out that actually, no, it is just as brutal as, as some of the worst uh, descriptions uh, make it seem. And either way, I think there is no way to make this. You know, for the for the Chinese government to make this uh make this sound better than it is. I mean, it uh it's horrible. In fact, what's going on in in the in the region in terms of what they're doing and and these camps, I guess, are the in many ways the the main element in terms of physical you know the, the physical uh certainly the architecture of the place, but also what the the representation, I guess, of this whole policy. That be a way to look at it in terms of um, you know. The importance of some of the work that you've done on this, I mean, this is identifying these camps and showing where they are and and being able to get a more accurate idea of the numbers of people being repressed is, yeah, I mean, it's vital work. Yeah, so it's been estimated by the UN and others that there's upwards of a million people Mm -hmm. currently being detained. Um, That's out of a population of around 11 million. Mm -hmm. It's it's both a huge number and a huge proportion of that group. Um, What we've seen over the past few years is this like step change in the internment camps from being yeah the, this sort of almost permissive like these makeshift camps to some to a much more permanent infrastructure we've also seen as well as people being interned 
and and detained in that way in these re-education camps, which, I mean, the, the reasons that people would be sent to one of these camps are things like having travelled abroad, having a family member abroad. Maybe they've watched um, films or listened to music from from the Middle East, you know, from outside of China. Um, maybe they've had WhatsApp on their phone, things like that. Um, it's, re- it, you know, mm. things which are not crimes in China at all. Um, mm. And also things which in in most other places would be considered very bum- uh, very benign, and those are the reasons that people are landing in in these camps. There's also been a sharp uptick in the numbers of people who've been arrested and charged with and charged with actual crimes in Xinjiang because there isn't a very good sort of legal process if you're arrested and accused of a crime. Ninety nine percent of people who are are charged are also convicted, and so. Um, yeah, so there's a pretty there's a pretty direct route then from those pre-trial camps you mentioned to the the, the bigger internment camps. Yeah, I mean those people would people who've been charged with a crime um, would would then sort of end up in what are actually like officially prisons rather than the internment camps. But ah. as I said, like there's no there isn't it doesn't feel like there's a meaningful a, a very meaningful difference between the internment camps and the prisons, both in the sense that people are locked up with, with either no due process or very little due process and for things right. which wouldn't be considered crimes elsewhere. Um, also, just the, the massive rise in people being detained in these ways. Um, and then, I mean, from my perspective, looking at the satellite imagery, there are some places that we know are prisons and there's a few places that we know are certainly like um, re-education camps, and there's not always a huge amount to to distinguish them um, mm. in terms of like security features, for example, and like Got the, it. the heaviness of those security features. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, uh, presumably, I guess because they both both types of facilities fulfil a similar purpose. I guess necessarily the the architecture has to be fairly similar. Um, yeah. I mean, we yeah. do see differences in, in levels of security in different camps um, mm-hmm. about the number of layers of bobbed wire that you have on either side of a big, thick wall. There are some lower security um, places, which I think are, are camps rather than prisons, which just have a fairly heavy wall around them, a fairly high wall around them, that they don't have guard towers, for example. They don't have multiple um layers of barricading around them so we do see some differences but as when looking at the detention facilities camps prisons pre-trial detention centers as a whole there's not a huge amount to distinguish the the different groups right got it okay and so and after all of this after sort of going systematically through all of these images and, and identifying all of these sites. I mean, how many, how many did you ultimately identify that you thought were likely to be these types of newly or relatively newly um, built or, or expanded um, re-education centers in internment camps, yeah. um, rather, you know, the, rather than what they might have been previously? In our database, 
at the time of publishing, we, we published in BuzzFeed um, on the 27th of August. So at the time of publishing, we had 268 locations, which we believed were part of the current programme and which were still open. We had another, we've now got, we've now got 270. We've had a couple more confirmed okay. um, in the past couple of weeks. And when you, when you say confirmed, that, how, how, how does that process work in terms of confirming what that site is? Um, for one, we had a media report um, right. that we found. Mm-hmm. So that's that's been a typical way. Um, Got it. We have like media reports. A journalist has visited. Um, a, a group called Bitter Winter have had have managed to do some amazing work where they've managed to get, for example, um, videos and images from construction workers showing that a given place is a camp. So that's, that's one way. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's also researchers such as Sean Zhang who've managed to find tender documents. Um, and yeah, Adrian Zenz also has has found a lot of tender documents. Um, also um, job adverts for guards at these places, things like that. Interesting. So that's right. that's yeah. the way that they've been corroborated. Mm, okay, got it, got it. And you, sorry, you were saying also about the numbers. So you've gone up to 270 oh, yeah. now and... Presumably... 270, which we think are part of the current programme and are also right. still open. Mm. There's about another 50, which we think, which we believe were camps and which we think now have closed. Right, um, okay. So in, in a few cases, places have been active, like fully demolished and we can see fairly conclusively that they, they've closed. In other cases, they've had security features removed. You know, the barbed wire that was in the courtyards of these schools and former hospitals has been removed. So has the police checkpoint that was was in front. And it appears that the building is now occupied, but possibly for a different purpose. You know, so where previously when there was a camp, um, there wouldn't be cars within the compound. There would be a sort of a, a car park outside, possibly quite a makeshift car park, just cars parked along a neighbouring road. And now we would mm-hmm. see cars spread throughout that site, which indicates that it's not, it's no longer a high security site and it's, it's probably not no longer a camp. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Are, are there still more that you're investigating as well that you're still looking into? Um, I mean, we've got, we, we've got all of those sites that I just named. There's mm-hmm. also a series of the pre-trial detention centres, which we didn't including in that 270. And then in our database, we've also found a load of, of older prisons which appear in, in some other researchers' work. And so we felt it was important to have publicly have an opinion about these places. I was going to say, I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal number, you know, whichever whichever way you look at it in terms of, you know, and as yeah. you were saying before, that there isn't necessarily a hard and fast difference between a normal prison and, and one of these facilities, but mm. it, just, it just shows a remarkable, you know, shift or that it's a tangible way of measuring in some to some extent the the, the effect of this po- policy shift to really crack down and re- you know to really drive this repression in the region that so many of these facilities have have, um, have come about in, in such a short space of time either from being converted or, or newly built yeah it was really shocking to sort of start looking for these places and start looking at these places and realise that this shift had taken place away from this like fairly makeshift um, 
series of camps where it should mm-hmm. be, I should make clear, like there was still a huge amount of abuses taking place. Yeah. Um, but then to see that shift towards these absolutely massive facilities, um, mm-hmm. purpose built, really permanent. I mean, some of them, there's a camp at Damancheng, and which is um, one of the ones that we talked about in the article we published a few weeks ago. And that, I mean, it, it, it's a huge place. It's Devancheng is just outside of Rumchi. It, it's one of the districts of Rumchi. And it's probably like, well, it is the largest camp that we know of. It's the main camp there can hold about, it can hold over 30,000 people, according to analysis that we did. Then through last year, they started to build yet another camp right next to it, which can hold a further 10,000. And that was completed, I think, in November um, last year. And actually, it was completed just at the same time that um, one of the um, CCP officials who um, is responsible for Xinjiang made an announcement saying that, oh, you know, the camps have closed. All of the all of the detainees have have graduated, by which you know he means like completed their, ed- their re-education. And yet, at that same time, this massive camp had just been completed, and there were a series of other ones which were just wrapping up construction. And so, uh, I mean, for anyone who's not familiar with the region, Urumqi is the, the capital of the region. So I guess is that, yeah. it, in that sense, is I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, not an expert in the region by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's the most popular, mo- most populous area. It's the biggest city. So, and so Kashgar, which is in the sort of west, southwest, is actually the area which has the largest number of of Uyghur people. Um, and so that's where you see many of the the camps um, concentrated, mm-hmm. right. they, including mm-hmm. like some of these huge new ones. Um, but yeah, Devancheng is is the biggest that we found so far, and it's it's shockingly huge. We wow. we ended up doing some. We started measuring it. And realized it's like it's two kilometers long, the main camp, which is a, like an absolutely outrageous it, It's yeah. half the length of Central Park in New York. Wow. Um, it would it would the main camp would cover a quarter of Central Park, um, and then the one next to it would cover like another eighth of that park. It's huge. And um, you know, once once you've you know pulled all this research together, or you, or you you, you know you've you collected all of this information, you've confirmed and verified all of these sites. You know, when you were, you and Mega were working on this, um, what was the sort of next stage in terms of getting that story out there and deciding, okay, well how how do we how do we um, explain this and describe it to people and show them the extent of this? Yeah, I mean one of the one of the really important things that we wanted to do, and which um, which is sort of what Mega really like led on, and that's that's her big expertise, was going out and speaking with detainees and sort of getting testimony so that we could tell the human story of what's happening mm-hmm. in these camps and and in Xinjiang more more widely alongside this um this more sort of technical analysis because by telling those human stories you can sort of put it put that bigger picture sort of into into perspective and you can show what it really means yeah i guess it becomes relatable then doesn't it in terms of it not just being numbers or sizes of facilities it's something that's much more um easy easy i guess for people to relate relate to and understand and and and, and then from there once you explain the numbers they can start to scale up from the story of those yeah. indi- stories of those individuals. Yeah, exactly. 
Mm, wow, that's incredible. Um, and what's what's next on this project? I mean, is, is, is this an ongoing project for you in, in terms of continuing this research and, and how do you develop it further from here? Our work is still ongoing. We're starting to now analyse each of the camps that we've found in more detail and we should have another series of, of stories coming out like leading up to Christmas. For anyone who hasn't seen it, I guess in our audience, I mean, the, the, the details of the story were published by BuzzFeed um, and they've been picked up by lots of other outlets. And so this is, this is you know, it's, it, it's already made quite a, quite a splash, I guess. But how have you, you know, what's your experience been of the response to the story um, as, it, as, you know, as it's broken and then to subsequently? I mean, it's, it's been great. We've, we've had, you know, two million people almost to, it was two weeks ago we had like 1.7 million people who had read the stories on BuzzFeed so it's, it's probably higher by now mm. um, which is an incredible number it, it's really fantastic to see that having done you know all of this work that, that it is being read that it is being taken up and that it is being talked about um, you know the Washington Post also wrote an editorial based on the work that we've done um, and ended it by calling for China to lose the, the 2022 Winter Olympics as well mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so it, it it's great to be to see it being taken seriously like that. Yeah, no um, doubt. I guess I guess then it, it helps build, you know, by by generating those discussions, it helps build pressure and it helps you know organisations, as you said, like the Washington Post, others make those kinds of um, calls and and for people to to try and get behind this issue and and just to understand it better. Um, and and it's just going back to the methodology and how you actually went about doing it i mean the the availability of, of satellite imagery to do this is, is obviously crucial um you know for, for anyone else who wants to get involved in this type of research or replicate perhaps some of what you've done how you know how difficult is it i mean you, you've obviously got got a huge level of expertise in this area um but how did you how did you build that up did, you know obviously it takes a long time but is it something that others can sort of look at how you've done it and then go away and learn the techniques and replicate for themselves? Yeah, sure. I mean, about a month ago, Mago and I did a workshop for the for the Architecture Foundation where we actually did a, a guided tour um, using Google Earth. Um, and we sort of took people through some of these camps and pointed out the features which which allowed us to know that they were a camp and sort of pointed out sort of interesting things that we could, that were happening. I think, you know, having something like that is really helpful as a way in um, so that you have somebody who who does know the particular topic that, um, that you're hoping to investigate or who knows the, the particular area looking at satellite photographs with you and sort of pointing out what it is that you ought to be looking for. You know, one of the, one of the really important things about satellite images is to have other information that helps you to to verify what you're do, what you're looking at and to sort of know that what you think you're looking at is is in fact um it, it that it is what you think it is so you know having for example in the case of um the camps in Xinjiang the fact that we we could sort of find these places on Google Earth but knowing that journalists had visited some of them and had been there until like yes this definitely is a camp the fact that there are photographs out there showing like showing these same places from ground level helps you to make sense of what you're looking at so so those things are are absolutely essential in terms of tool um we've mostly been using google earth pro um the satellite within that is is in most areas of xinjiang pretty up to date 
um, certainly it's up to sort of mid-2019 and often it's it's going into early 2020, even mid-2020 in some places. So there's like high resolution, high quality, recent um, satellite imagery available for free that you can use in this, in this case. Um, we've also, obviously that makes a huge difference for somebody who's looking to get into something like this and sort of start building their skills. Uh, we've also been using the Sentinel Hub playground from the European Space Agency, which is also a very nice and very and free online tool, which is um, sort of medium resolution satellite imagery, but it's much more frequent. So it's images taken, I think, of pretty much the whole globe every two, three days, even. It's incredibly frequent. Wow. And so that's been a huge help as well. I mean, we we have still run into challenges in getting hold of imagery. And I, yeah, actually, I should say that if you're working on something like a conflict zone where you're trying to look at, for example, bombings that have happened in the previous week, it, the work using satellite imagery would be much more challenging um, because it's much more difficult to get um, to get hold of recent satellite imagery, especially at low cost or, or even free. I mean, because yeah. that's one of those things that we talked about quite a lot on this Um uh, whether on this podcast or from other Jane's briefings that we've done over the years has been that, you know, in terms of when we talk, you know, we talk a lot about open source intelligence and, and that's sort of the uh, mainstay and the, the, the main thrust of our, our podcast and, and the work that we do within the Jane's intelligence unit. And we do a lot of training in open source intelligence in, in sort of very, um, uh, diverse sort of ways and, and tailored to, to particular customers, but imagery intelligence as part of that so it's been really fascinating to see over the, the sort of last 10 15 years the growth of the availability of satellite imagery and how it's really i guess encouraged uh, a whole new generation of people to become um imagery analysts in a way and to learn the skills and to learn how to use all of this information because as you said i mean something like uh like the sentinel imagery when there's so much of it and it's it's good quality and and it can really give you an insight into what's going on in different parts of the world. Um, it's an amazing resource. And I think it's probably, you know, we, we, we discussed this internally um, with colleagues. I think it was a, a year ago, or maybe even two years ago now, but we were talking about how, you know, one of the biggest developments, probably if not the most um, significant development that we've seen in open source intelligence, open source information over the last 10 years or, or, or even longer has been that development of open source satellite imagery and um, just getting to know and see what's going on in the world that otherwise previously we wouldn't have been able to do um, is amazing. And and your case study, I think is, is a great example of that because, you know, without, without that imagery being available, um, you wouldn't then be able to do all of the rest in terms of getting that confirmatory information and, and being able to say, okay, well, this looks like an interesting site. Let's go and see what other information is out there, whether it's from media reports or like you said, I mean, that, that was fascinating when you mentioned also looking at job ads for those facilities and being able to confirm that, yes, this, this is definitely what we think it is. Um, you know, in, in terms of the work you're doing with imagery and, and, uh, and satellite imagery, what do you sort of see in terms of trends or future developments? Do you see it, getting better or in some ways are there challenges occurring are there things is it getting harder to access imagery in any way or use it or or you know is there any and dare i say is there any are you starting to see any kind of deception creep in in terms of i know we're starting to see some of those like what you mentioned on on the, the baidu mapping some of the tiles of the, the imagery being hidden 
is there a danger that other resources could be affected in a similar way or you know uh, is is there a, 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 a general trend you're seeing or are there just sort of lots of different things going on at the moment um i mean i i think that i think that the the big challenge for all for all that i've said about the amazing availability of high res recent satellite imagery either through google earth or or through the sentinel or through sentinel um it's we still sort of struggled in some in some type in some places to get access to recent imagery um it wasn't available in in google and then in, in some in some places there just hadn't been imagery taken at high resolution since about 2006 um mm. and then as amazing as sentinel is it's medium resolution so you can sort of we were often able to identify sites that we'd like to look at more closely, but then we still need the imagery that would allow us to do that. So, um, I mean, we were we were very lucky in in being able to then work with Planet Labs, which is a commercial satellite imagery provider um, who has their own network of satellites. They very kindly gave us access to um, to high res, more recent imagery. In a, in a small number of cases and incredibly they also tasked satellite for us to go and have a look at some of these places that haven't been captured more recently and we That's were incredible. able to find yeah it was, it was amazing yeah. to get to do that um and, you know that allowed us to find a, a a new camp in a place called yiru in in hami which is right in the in the east of xinjiang um and in quite a remote quite a remote area um, and we were able to to see that actually the the old prison had been demolished, which was in the centre of town, and instead a new facility had been built on the outskirts. Um, I mean, we were incredibly lucky to to be able to do that. Um, that's not something that is open to everyone, and it's not open, and it it's not. Um, you know, we were able to do it in a, in a small number of cases. We wouldn't have been able to, you know, capture the whole of Xinjiang like that. Or sure, I, I mean, I guess um, it gets so it gets yeah. pretty expensive using commercial satellite imagery. Yeah. If you're able to to purchase it, and in some cases it's not it's not always available, as you said, in certain areas anyway, yeah. to be able to purchase it. Yeah. So that the, mm. that's that's for me it's a big issue. This like the democratization of of access to these sorts of tools. Um. It, 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 in many cases, it's just outside of the reach of the sort of the journalists, the human rights monitors, the the community activists who also need access to this information. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if over time, as more satellites go up and more imagery becomes available, whether the cost might come down. But yeah, I guess in the meantime, there's a. It's difficult in terms of. Um, trying to trying to sort of get detailed enough access but it's amazing that you you were able to do the even this, that sort of baseline of work that you were able to do with freely available imagery yeah you know and uh, and then go from there to get the the more the more specialist imagery when you needed it and um yeah it just it just shows what's what's possible and and what can be done with these types of resources um and I look forward to obviously reading more about the research as it comes out. And as you said, you've got more more um, details coming out. Will that, all of that be in BuzzFeed as well? Yeah. If people want to look for it. Okay, great. We're well, great. I'll well, I'll certainly keep an eye out for it, and um, I'm sure people who've listened to the podcast will do as well. 
Um, this has been a really fascinating discussion. I could, uh, you know, I was so glad you managed to um, come on, and um, it's a shame Mega wasn't able to join us. But uh, this is such vital work, and I think it's hopefully going to be really good for our audience to hear about it and hear about how you've gone about the process um, and to find out more about the techniques used, etc. Um, I just wanted to just maybe just before we wrap up, um, just loop back to the the. The, the start of the podcast when you mentioned digital storytelling and you talked a little bit about that and using it in the um to help explain the migrant crisis at the, you know back in 2015 and it, which is still ongoing and still a very live issue is that a technique again that you would apply in this case as well to helping explain and describe what's going on and, and pull it all together and, and has has digital storytelling moved on or changed in maybe the last few years you know in terms of the kind of tools that are maybe available to do that and, and how do you how do you go about maybe putting together a a digital uh a digital story in that sense because i know there's lots of different ways of doing it but um it'd be interesting to get an insight into a little bit a little insight into your methods as well yeah i mean the the project that that i did which migration trail um we it so all of it was um we built our own software to do it mm. um, and then it's sort of freely available on on a website which is migrationtrail.com got it um it's yeah i i think it's it's, it's a little difficult to sort of um discuss sort of the whole range of potential storytelling techniques Sure. Yeah. No. Sorry. I know it was sort of a how long is yeah. a piece of string kind of question, wasn't it? But yeah. Yeah. No. It's interesting though that yeah you mentioned there creating your own software to do it. Um, yeah. It, what's the sort of? I mean, I guess it also depends on the case as well in terms of what types of resources you've got available. So, for example, where you're talking about using satellite imagery, does that? How much does that drive the methods that you might use? Is, is it about the type of information you've got, or is it more about how you describe yeah. what you want to for the audience yeah so i mean so it, it was migration trail was um most it, it started off at least as being a project which was about maps primarily mm. and like how can you tell a story using maps um i largely do not like um a lot of like mapped storytelling um tools and platforms and techniques um so it was great to be able to build my own and to sort of be able to sort of challenge the the issues that I saw with with um yeah with, with telling with using maps for telling stories and what I sort of found was like maps are a really good way you have say one set of statistics which is like um for example this is where Syrians tend to travel within Europe um, right. it's, that's a very clear thing to be able to show on one map. It's like one set of statistics. Okay. Um, as soon as you start to get to stories which are a bit more like, um, even on one with Xinjiang, which is like, you know, this is, here's all of the, the camps in Xinjiang, and you want to sort of start talking about each one in more detail, maps become much more difficult. Um, you know, what they're not very good at is telling you what to look what bit of information to look at and in what order um, and so it's very difficult to sort of tell any sort of um, more complicated story using the maps right using maps and so what we did 
with Migration Trail was to, yeah, we, we had a story and we had a timeline and we had like these um, these migrants who were travelling to Europe and so they were travelling across the map and so you were able to see the story always then came back to them and it's um, focused around them and the map changed around them. Got it. Um, and so that sort of, that, and then, you know, we would use the zoom levels to add different layers of information. So as you zoomed in, you would get this much more um, personal information about the migrant, about, you know, how far can they continue to travel before their phone battery dies? And then as you zoomed out, you would get um, like this sort of bigger scale information that sort of helped to put that journey into context. So showing the locations of all um, all of the migrants who, who had died over the past sort of four years, and the locations of those deaths, or we chose sort of border walls in Europe, which helped to sort of, yeah, explain the context of their journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah. Um, uh, and I guess the, the aim of all of that is to, to put it together into a package which just has more impact, right? I mean, that, that's it, and helps you to, helps you tell the story with the right level of detail. Because as you said, just showing a few static maps, you might have the same information displayed, but it wouldn't be, it, it, you yeah, know, it, I mean, it wouldn't have the same impact. Yeah, I mean, again, that was sort of where the personal stories like mm. helped to come in. Um, that, um, you know, the, you've, we've got these sort of like huge numbers of people moving and um and we've got like statistics that talk about this like really big scale picture, but you, you need to know what that means in, in sort of individual mm-hmm. human terms. And you can only really understand that through, through individual stories. And so it's very important to then also include those w- within that project. I mean, the, the main thing that I wanted to do with that project was to sort of to tell that story, to tell that story of migration in a different way, because when I started to do it, um, it was sort of end of 2014. Um, large numbers of people were traveling through the central Mediterranean. There'd been a number of a number of really horrendous shipwrecks. There'd been loads of deaths. It was like it was really obvious that this was becoming a major issue, and yet it wasn't getting the media attention that it seemed to deserve. And so, sure. what I really wanted to try and do with Migration Trail was to tell this story in a different way, in order to sort of bring attention to it and also to sort of um, yeah, like make it fresh again and um so telling it in real time was was an attempt to do that to try and make it immediate for an audience and then doing it through maps and data also was an attempt to make it new this is again another another fascinating i feel like i could we could do another entire discussion just based around this because um again it's something that's obviously become um since then and since you mentioned you know you know at the time obviously it was not getting the the attention and then it did i guess with the um the the the, the sort of spikes we've had in numbers of migrants coming into europe and it, that's led to a lot more attention given to the issue but um it, it's it's such a vital story for what is going on right now and being able to explain it and describe it as it's happening is so challenging and, and and getting people to understand it as it's happening as well and we we definitely could have a, a entirely uh, separate discussion all about this this is um this is definitely an area that that's worth exploring in more detail and you know and for people who are interested it's worth them still going checking out migrationtrail.com i guess and having a look at the 
the the apples you put there and and the story that you described there um i think i think as a way of also understanding digital storytelling and seeing how that works i think that's that's also valuable and any examples like that i think are now becoming more interesting because people increasingly want these kinds of um I suppose outputs in terms of being able to absorb information in a way which is different to how it would have been done previously in terms of just either viewing it online or um, either reading text or even watching videos. It's it's much more dynamic. This has been yeah, like I said, I, I could we could we could easily go on for another discussion here, and I'm, I'm conscious that we're probably getting to the end of end of our time in, on this episode. But I want to say, Alison, it, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and thanks for taking the time to come on to our podcast. No, oh, thanks for having me been really nice really nice to be on nice great thanks so much and um yeah for anyone who who wants to follow up and and do check out all of the information on that's been published on the story as i mentioned on buzzfeed and uh there'll be more to come uh thanks so much alison and um thanks for everyone who's listened